Hi, welcome to the Black Dog Institute Being Well podcast. I'm Zasha Rosen, one of Jan Ullman's producers. And for this episode, we're presenting a single story, Wayne's story. Wayne Wiggum was a professional footballer early in his career for what was Sydney's Balmain side. His career has since taken him a long path from rugby league to working for the Black Dog Institute as a speaker and an educator. But he's also had to deal with depression for most of his life. And one of the things you'll hear in his story is how much better his life became once he was able to access the help that he needed, and how much he himself believes in the value of asking for help. And just a warning, this episode discusses suicide and the effects of depression. If listening to any of this upsets you, in Australia you can always call Lifeline on 13 11 14. There are other resources you can access, and we have some of them in the episode notes. And now, Wayne's story. Well, basically, I was really sad from the moment I was born. So my mum knew something was wrong with me from a very, very young age, crying a lot, sad. But back then, this was really unknown. No one really knew much about what was wrong with me. They really just put me on sedatives. From there, it was to struggle through school. I grew up in North Ryde. My dad was a CEO of a big company, very young. He was ex-Navy. When I was about 10, my dad came home from work one night. He said to us that he was sorry, but he was going to die. And 10 or 15 seconds later, he hit the deck from a massive heart attack and passed away. He was only 39. He must have felt it coming on. And after that, it's a bit of a blur, but he basically died. Sport saved my life. Before my dad died, he worked for a big company and they had a big Christmas party at Rose Hill Racecourse and there was that many people there. They used to have races for kids, like age groups. When I was about under five, I went in a race and I won by about 30 metres and all of a sudden I went, God, I'm fast. When you're just sad, you really don't know that that's not normal. You have no benchmark of normal life, so you just live that way and think, well, this is the way people live. But all I knew was that I felt better when I played sport. I felt better and I loved it. Sport was my escape to the point where if it was raining the night before I was supposed to play sport all through my young life, I would cry, I'd be devastated. I would panic that I wouldn't feel good for a day and it was my only time that I ever felt that I was okay. And the rest of the time was struggling just to function and not be crying or panicking everywhere I went. But when my father died, my mum was pretty much hammered by it. So instead of going to Sydney Grammar School, I went to North Ride High. I was very tall but very skinny. So I was an easy target and I really, I was just miserable. My mum was having to come down to the school at a morning tea just so I could stay for the day. It was awful. And I didn't know what was wrong. I just didn't know why I was like this. But then someone said that if I played rugby league for the local team that I would be okay because I would get to know everybody. So I went and joined up and they didn't give me a run for about three weeks because they only knew me as a shy, quiet guy that cried and wasn't quite there at school. And then I finally got a run with the team and then from the first time I touched the ball, I was really good at football. 
I don't know if I would have survived without sport. It gave me an escape. It gave me an identity. It made me feel better about myself. And when I was playing and when I was training and when I was running and all the other sports I played, I escaped. For the time I was there, I was not miserable. I felt okay and I felt good about myself. And at the same time too, what I realise now is that with all the training and all the sport I was doing, I was getting endorphins. So I was actually helping myself because I was playing a real lot and I was running and jumping and I was producing the endorphins. So when I look back now, I realise that the exercise was helping me you know, medicate myself by producing the endorphins that I needed to make me feel 10, 15% better. So every time after the game, I'd feel okay. 15 minutes in the game, if I started a game sad, after 15 minutes, I would not be sad anymore. I love the game, I love the competition, and I love the escape of it, win, lose, or draw. When you're young in rugby league and you first get picked in the first grade team, well, the first time you're in the sheds before the game, it's exciting but very scary. And the first time you run onto the field and the big crowd cheers, it's just an adrenaline rush that's pretty much hard to get ever again in your life. And after a while, if you do happen to be good enough and you go okay, it's a real shock to realise that you do deserve your place there. On a normal day, when I was feeling okay, my experience would just be, yeah, get myself psyched up, do my warm-up, just before the game, rev each other up, then run out. On the days when I was really depressed, sometimes I'd be in the toilets crying. I mean, I remember one day when everyone was getting revved up and I was just, I went and hid in the toilet and I cried for five minutes because I was so sad, I didn't know what was wrong, I didn't know how I could feel like that. Just struggled with no energy. Sometimes going to a game, I was so depressed, I didn't know it was, but I would be exhausted. As anyone who's suffered a bit of depression or when you're down, anyone knows how hard it is even to walk 10 yards sometimes, how you lose all your energy. I'd be walking to a game and just wanted to fall asleep on the ground in front of me. And I just didn't know what it was. I thought I was letting my teammates down. I thought, what's wrong with me? How can I be like this? So I really just didn't understand what was happening. What I found was that if I could last the first 15 minutes of the game without making a fool of myself, I'd usually begin to feel better. And now I realise again, it was the endorphins kicking in from the 15 minutes of hard exercise. And I would always go, okay, after that. Not to let people know how I truly was, was exhausting. My friends thought I was happy-go-lucky, not a care in the world. But it was exhausting and to pretend that I was okay all the time. Often by the time I got home, I would just shut my bedroom door, collapse and sleep for most of the time in between. When you have suffered sadness or anxiety or even depression all your life, you have no benchmark of normality. So you don't know what's right and you don't know what you should strive for. By this time, I was starting to have some thoughts of suicide. I was just getting tired of feeling that way. But again, the sport kept me up and kept me going and I had a lot of friends and I had a pretty active lifestyle. So yeah, there was no education and no one was talking about it within our group back then during my football career. Every day was its own little torture, you know, without being melodramatic. From the moment I woke up of a morning, I was sad. I felt like this was going to be my life. My life was going to be like this forever. I was going to live with this overwhelming sadness. I used to think, God, what if I live another 20 years like this? Can I make it? And I began to have those thoughts 
privately that I, I didn't know whether if I'm, I used to get scared of making it to 40 and how could I live like this until I was that old. I played for 10 years but I was only 27 when I retired and it was because I thought I had to try something else. Maybe it was the football that was making me feel like this. Maybe there was something else I could do and in hindsight I could have played for a few more years. So I joined the fire brigade and I was, you know, married thinking of having kids and I knew I had to make a living and I knew I had to survive. I knew that I could not function in a nine-to-five job. I knew that in the fire brigade there were periods of high energy when you went to rescues or when you went to fires, but I also knew that I would have plenty of time to hide. So I joined the fire brigade to survive. I joined the fire brigade because I knew I could make a living but not have to be confronted with having to function eight hours a day. Every decision I made in my life was based around surviving depression until a certain age, and the fire brigade was definitely, definitely based on that decision. Back then it was mostly men. Now it's changed a little bit. But, you know, for 12-hour, 10-hour shifts in between fires and practice, we would be sitting there with nothing else to do but talk or to watch movies, to be honest. But there was a lot of talking and there was a lot of marriage breakups in the fire brigade because of the shift work. And like all walks of life, there were people that were going through bad times. And because you're sitting with those people for so long, you hear a lot of their stories. We, we talk to each other. And people that were struggling, sitting there in a lounge room with you, would talk. And I was always open to that. And I think it helped all of us to be able to talk. Some people wouldn't, but some people would. I spent 10 years in the fire brigade again, hiding it from the world, hiding it from my workmates, hiding it from my wife, hiding it from my mother. But it began to get over the top of me after many years of living in the pain. And I will say that living with anxiety or depression for that long... I don't care who you are, the pain will wear you. So it was wearing me and wearing me. Suicidal thoughts were getting stronger and stronger, panicking about living too long. So eventually I had a suicide attempt. I just couldn't take it anymore. The pain had got too much. Obviously I got to hospital. I got misdiagnosed. Unfortunately, I stayed in a psych ward for a month. For my boys, you know, one of the hardest things was to see their dad so depressed and they were probably 14 and 16. They knew I had the suicide attempt. They saw that I could hardly function after I got a hospital. They saw it all and I was feeling terrible about that. You know, I thought I'd destroyed their lives. I thought they would think I was weak and hate me. But the fact is, and this is what's beautiful about when we talk about things like this, the fact is that they started to read about it. They started to talk about it and they started to understand that depression was an illness. Then I had a lot of their mates come up to me, say, Mr Wiggum, I think I'm struggling too. Or Mr Wiggum, my dad is going through the same things. And my boys and their friends, they started to talk about it because I started to talk about it. And they formed groups. So now if one of their friends suffers, they'll ring each other. So the thing I was scared of the most actually was the best because I know that my boys talk about it, I know that their friends talk about it and I know that if my boys struggle they'll put their hand up. So it was worth it. It was worth it to know that. I would hate to think that they or anybody didn't put their hand up or didn't understand that it's an illness. So the more they talk about it, the friends talk about it, then the next generation will talk about it. 
I would much rather go through it myself than think that my kids went through it. It's a great example to set to your kids to ask for help when you need it. So I'm really happy that my boys talk about it. I'm really happy that I can go and have a beer or go and talk to my boys and they know that I've been depressed. They know I've hardly been... They know everything. But they understand that that's not a shame, that bad luck for the daddy, he just happened to get an illness. And I got diagnosed with just depression. Um, the medication they gave me didn't help. I got out and I was still suicidal, still very ill. Then I really started to lose hope. Then eventually someone recommended that I see a guy at the Black Dog Institute. By this time I was on my death legs. I'd lost my marriage. I was drinking heavily. I was taking lots of drugs. I didn't know what was wrong. I couldn't live with it anymore and I didn't think there was any help. I just didn't know. I thought there was no way out. I thought this was the way I had to live. And I began to panic. And, of course, I lost relationships close to me because I became reclusive, I wasn't talking. Just a reminder that if listening to this story brings up issues for you that you need to talk to somebody about, you can call Lifeline in Australia on 13 11 14. And um, then someone recommended that I go and see this guy, and it was my last stand. And I was diagnosed with melancholia, on which I know is not easy to diagnose from what I've learnt. Once I got diagnosed correctly, I got on some medication that helped and I learned to be disciplined. I learned that I had to do certain things to stay well or to stay okay. It is an illness that is with you for life. I do have to keep on my medication. I do have to keep exercise. I've got to manage it. It's like any illness. Like There's so many other illnesses in life that people have that they have to manage. Diabetes, for one. If you have heart problems, you've got to manage it. Well, you know, just like that, the particular illness I have is an illness that I have to manage. And that's nothing wrong with that. So he messed around my medication for a while. And then one day I was sitting out the backyard in my place and all of a sudden I noticed that the trees looked a bit green. And I noticed that the sky looked a bit okay. And all of a sudden I thought, I don't feel sad. I thought... I feel a bit different. I felt okay. And it was probably the first time in my life that I'd felt that, and it was amazing. I just felt okay, and all of a sudden I had my benchmark. I had a benchmark of normality. I had a touch where I was feeling okay. I'd been surviving. I'd been semi-okay. I'd been not suicidal, but I'd never felt this before. And it was just amazing. And, you know, from there, it didn't last all day or the next day, but I had a taste and I began to know what normal was. So when you get a benchmark, you know what you can aim for. After I got on medication, I met a girl who'd suffered melancholia herself and she said every time she had a bad thought, she forced two good ones in, so I started practicing forcing good thoughts in. I started to pat myself on the back for the good things that I did, not just torture myself for the bad ones. Like, you know, I sound like an old hippie and I'm an old hard-ass bloke, but a lot of these things we got to practice. Exercise, again, became extremely important. I rewarded myself for small steps. I respected myself that I had an illness and not to hate myself for it. I was a client of the Black Dog. 
And then I noticed that they had volunteer speakers. People who had lived experience who went out to community groups, schools, rotary clubs, RSL, anyone who asked any groups of people. So we'd go out and the lived experience presentation was just really going through the signs and symptoms of depression and explaining how it affected my life and my own life experience. So I started volunteering. The main thing for anyone to know and the big point of our talks for all the volunteer speakers or the professional speakers is to convince people it's an illness. Once people know that they actually have an illness and there may be a way out of it, that's a huge relief. I remember the first time I heard somebody explaining their symptoms and how they felt and it was like mind-blowing to me because here was someone I'd never talked to explaining exactly what I had verbatim and all of a sudden I had a belief that I did have an illness. Even when I read about it before that, I didn't believe it. But when I started to hear people repeating symptoms and stories that were exactly similar to mine, I said, well, this can't be a lie. This must be an illness. Because I'm a big blokey bloke, I'm not scared to go and talk to big blokey bloke audiences. And, you know, eight years ago, no one was doing it much. I think it helps that I was an ex-rugby league player, that I, I think it helps that I can say that I'm not scared man, I'm not a weak man, I'm not physically weak. And I think that helps me because then I can say, but depression will make me cry like a baby. That makes people realise, well, I'm not weak. Because a lot of people think it's a weakness. A lot of people think they're weak. And that's just so wrong. They're not weak. They're the toughest people in the world if they're living this. And it just maybe helps me make that point a little bit better than if I wasn't. And then from there, the black dog started getting some work into the mines. And they needed a speaker that they thought could handle going into places in the middle of nowhere where I'd be talking to really blokey blokes, miners, you know, who hadn't heard much about mental health, who might be a bit resistant to someone talking on such matters. When I went to the mines, a lot of guys got up and put their hand up and said they were struggling. And a lot of blokes sought help after it. And some of the most surprising guys, the toughest guys in the room. And once you get someone like that stand up, it changes everything. It makes it okay. So to have someone who everyone respects on that mind site and might be a leader, to get up and say, boys, I felt like this, it's a wonderful thing. And that's what I learned from the mind sites. And I also learned that I already knew that the hardest men have got the biggest heart sometimes. It's just true. And then from there, yeah, just when the work came up into male-dominated industries, out with the rural remote work, many Indigenous and remote communities. So through Mission Australia, Department of Sport and Rec, Newcastle Uni, quite a few agencies and the Black Dog got together and we started a program with the Country Rugby League where we'd go into, you know, 15 to 20 remote towns around rural remote area. How we got people involved was because a lot of people won't turn up to talks about mental health because they think that if I turn up, they'll think I'm struggling and people don't want to know, especially in little towns, especially in the past, not so much now. We'd ring up all the local sporting teams and say, if you get 80% of your players there, we'll give you money towards your club. So we took away the excuse why they wouldn't come. And it wasn't too much money. 
right? But it might pay for some jerseys and some petrol and then the club management's bustled up everybody. So five years ago we started and, you know, towns like Cobar, Wilcannia, Menindee, Goodooga, they're a mixture of cultures but mainly Indigenous and they'd bustle up their 80 people or their 80% of the town. And then for the second year, not only did we get the players but we'd get some of their family. The third year, we'd get more. And, you know, we've done it five years now. The numbers have increased dramatically. We've done it in pubs. We've done it on football grounds. We've done it in change rooms. Sometimes we don't have our projector. We don't have things set up. Sometimes we just have to talk. So you have to be flexible. But often, you know, they'll set us up in places like the change rooms or community sheds. RSL clubs is a big one. Bowling clubs. The communities usually get behind it and set us up as well as they can. Everybody has lost someone to suicide out in the country. Everyone knows someone who has suicided or everyone knows of someone who knows somebody. We go in fairly powerfully from the start. So the reaction is of interest. They all know. They've all lost. They're all part of it. And it's affected somebody. And we try to take away the negatives. If you're worried about someone finding out, well, don't go to your GP in your town, drive 200 k's to another town. People out in these towns, they're sick of someone going there once and never being seen again. So we repeat it and we'll keep repeating and we'll keep taking the message and we'll keep educating and it'll sink down and more and more people will ask for help. When we go do the talks, we'll always have professionals with us and I can't tell you how many people have got up and got help straight after. We've had people that were fairly close to hurting themselves and they've actually stood up after or during the speech and straight away they've been wrapped around by the health services. I know that we would have, if not saved their lives, saved them a lot of grief. So from there we did some work with the NRL. We got all the NRL players, went through signs, symptoms of depression, that it's an illness, that we seek help. We did all that and we started to teach them how to do talks to their other mates. Quite a few people got up, said they were suffering. We had a lot of people get up and say they wanted to learn how to talk, wanted to be trained so they could go do presentations. And now they do. They talk to each other. They go into schools. They go to junior reps. They talk about it amongst themselves. So these days, the players are well-educated on mood disorder. They would tell somebody straight away. The Institute does a lot of work with the NRL and all the players, every player from under 16s up now are well-educated on the symptoms of depression and anxiety and they are, their, their motto is it takes a tough man to live with it but it takes a tougher man to put his hand up. And from what I've seen in the last four or five years, it's really working. The majority of players will put their hand up and the majority of players will give them support because everyone in that community can relate to it now. Now we've taught the current rugby league players and the ones that we taught, they've just finished their careers they'll be the ones that talk to the ones now because they're closer to their age group. For me now, the main point of exercise for me is running, although it's more run, shuffle, run. I wouldn't call it galloping at my age now. So I shuffle, but it still gives me the endorphin rush and still gives me the exercise and I still get a nice sweat and I go and do it at nice places. And I make sure I do that three or four times a week 
just four or five k's at a really slow pace but I enjoy that and I surf I still ride a surfboard so you know I do get out in the water and that's a different type of exercise it doesn't give me the endorphins but it helps me mindfulness side of things because I can get out there and just look at the beauty of the coast and the water and things like that it is really important that I keep discipline if I lose my discipline I go downhill again if you're talking to yourself and it's 99% negative, you don't have to live like that. I used to think it was just the way I was. You can learn not to be like that. Anyone who feels that way, please go and get help. It's not how you have to be. You don't have to give up to it. Because it's like an illness, you can get help. The Black Dog have a website where you can get on and learn all about it. There's a self-assessment test. If you're really struggling, you know, you can ring people like Lifeline. And their number is 13 11 14 and they've got really good trained people on there but you know really the first step for many people is to go and talk and have a really open honest chat to your gp and the gp will send you on the right path but if you're really desperate yeah you ring up lifeline or you talk to a friend but there's plenty of information on the internet and uh, the Black Dog website is a great way to educate yourself. And if you see any of the things on the site that resonate with you, just seek help. With online mental health programs, knowledge is power. It's wonderful to get on the website. Learn about it. Do the online self-help test. Read about everything that's on the website. And then you'll understand and know that what you're going through, that you are not alone, that there is lots of information about it, if you understand the illness, you can fight the illness. Use that information to when you go see the professionals, you know what to talk about. And the last thing I would like to say is if you do make an appointment with a doctor or a specialist, bleed your heart. Don't be ashamed. There's nothing that you thought or felt that you need to be ashamed of. Just tell them everything. It's really important. And those who have suffered, they won't hear anything that they haven't heard before because everything we feel and do is fairly common amongst those of us who suffer. Just make that commitment self to bleed the truth. That was Wayne Wiggum talking about his life with football, with melancholia and working for the Black Dog Institute. If you're interested in having Wayne talk to your community, have a look in the episode notes for details. As well as Lifeline, you can also look at electronic mental health resources like Black Dog's My Compass. We've included a link to that and other resources as well. Don't forget to check out the Being Well blog for more information. You can find it by searching for Black Dog Institute Being Well. This episode was produced and introduced by Sasha Rosen. The presenter for the Being Well series is Jan Ullman. Music by Chris Zabriskie and Lee Rosevere. Thanks for listening.